Hello and welcome to CIO Perspectives. I'm Sid All, the co-CIO of Private Client Endowments and Foundations here at Brown Advisory, and I'm joined today by my co-CIO, Erica Pagel. Today, we plan to discuss our 2024 Asset Allocation and Investment Outlook piece, which we recently released. Please check out the links to the document in our show notes, and we hope you'll enjoy it. We'll seek to cover some of the major themes of our outlook, including the surprising resilience of the U.S. economy, the mounting impact of higher rates, concerns about the deficit and fiscal situation in the U.S., and the potential economic and market impacts of AI and the GLP-1 weight loss drugs. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Erica, how did we see a 20% return in global stocks last year, despite all the issues, stubborn inflation, high rates, banking crisis, disappointment in China, and two wars as the backdrop? Thanks, Sid. Last year's return for the S&P 500 was pretty impressive. It actually makes me reflect on the first sentence in our market outlook which includes two words to describe 2023, surprising and resilient. What do we mean by surprising? Last year defied investor expectations as a recession was broadly predicted by both economists and investors. By resilient, the markets, as you highlighted, shrugged off a lot of headwinds. And, you know, benchmark interest rates are now at the highest level in more than 16 years which has left the yield curve inverted since mid-2022. And despite all this, the economy did not go bust. And frankly, lower inflation has been an easier call than a recession. So if we had to sum it up, I would highlight three drivers of market returns last year. First being the resilient economy. GDP growth came in higher than expected labor market remained strong. The unemployment rate remained steady. Actually, January's jobs report was above expectations, and there continues to be real wage growth as price inflation is falling faster than wage inflation. Consumer spending remains strong, but we are starting to see some headwinds mounting and changing signs of consumer behaviors. And then trailing core PCE over the past six months has already reached or is close to the Fed's 2% target. Second is tech concentration and the AI euphoria that's driven the Magnificent Seven returns. Last year was a very narrow rally, and the Magnificent Seven average return was more than 110%. And now U.S. large cap growth valuations are at a 70% premium to their long-term median. And then third, this more dovish Fed resulted in a bond-driven equity market rally in the fourth quarter of last year. The markets interpreted the Fed's comments in October as the long-awaited pivot, and you saw the 10-year Treasury drop from just about 5% to below 4% pretty quickly. And this caused a risk on rally, but it was one that was more broad. So you saw really strong performance in value and small cap, and those two areas actually outperformed U.S. large cap in the fourth quarter of last year. Maybe, Sid, I'll just mention a couple things that's different today versus six months ago. So there's broad consensus that the Fed has ended its interest rate hiking cycle, but what comes next is actually far less clear. The odds of a severe recession appear to be lower, and that leaves this soft landing or, you know, you've mentioned this a lot, this Goldilocks scenario 
with a higher likelihood. So this is when the economy will slow, but in a more manageable way. And in that scenario, both bonds and equities can actually perform well. But, you know, I'd say we're not out of the woods yet. You know, January CPI came in a bit hotter than expected, which has caused the markets to reset a bit in February. And that's a good thing. But, you know, Sid, the moves that we've seen over the past year in the yield curve have been historic. The 10-year Treasury yield has jumped 40 basis points in the past two weeks so far in February. That's a 9% move. So, I mean, the 10-year Treasury yield chart actually looks more like a stock chart today. Yeah, it was a pretty disappointing last inflation print. I mean, there was kind of no good that you could take out of it for that one month, which was, you know, core PCE was up way higher than the Fed's target. And even if you looked at the super core, you know, which trips out the effects of real estate and rent, that was really high. So, you know, the market, I think, understandably took a moment and kind of considered, well, actually, have we slayed the inflation beast and pretty quickly moved to take out nearly one of the rate cuts that was expected this year? I mean, I just kept thinking about what we've been talking about and writing about for the last few months is that, you know, we need to remain humble as to the path of the economy and inflation, just because we've had such powerful forces, you know, both on the way up with historical monetary and fiscal stimulus and then on the way down as we slammed on the brakes and money supply is shrinking and rates have moved, you know, higher, faster than they have in 40 years. So it's really pretty remarkable what we've seen the last few years. So why don't I dial in on this concentration point? You know, we talk so much about the Magnificent Seven, but just how historic is the concentration in the market today? And what conclusions do you draw from it? So concentration within the S&P 500 is actually not new, but there's definitely some differences today versus history. So last year, just looking at the equal weighted S&P 500 index alone, that increased 14%. So that's actually a 12% differential versus the market cap weighted index. And that's the largest gap between those two indices since 1998. So something that you know we've used a lot in our materials to talk about the market outlook over the past couple of months is from a market cap weighted perspective, you could either buy Apple or you could buy all the stocks in the Russell 2000 today. So just taking a step back, if you look at 1999, the top five stocks, Microsoft, Cisco, ExxonMobil, GE, and Walmart, they represented roughly 17, 18% of the index. But from a market cap perspective of just a few names, we really haven't seen the concentration this high since the Nifty 50, which essentially drove the bull market starting in the 1960s. Similar to today, these names were considered market darlings, but I think the biggest thing that we learned in the early 70s from the Nifty 50s is that, you know, stocks can actually hit limits of growth, and that's particularly important today. So just a few more stats, you know, the market value of the 10 largest companies in the S&P 500 has not been above 30% of the index, so similar today since the mid-1970s. And the last time the S&P 500 technology sector was 30% of the S&P 500, that was back in 2000. So mania swept these stocks last year in the 1990s and then in the 1960s. And then in each of these times, I mean, the multiples on these stocks have been significantly higher than the market average. So some conclusions today is, look, you know, several of these companies represent good investment opportunities, good long-term investments. 
But the concentration that we're seeing today and the thematic similarities of these companies definitely poses a lot of risks. Multiples are broadly higher, particularly for companies like NVIDIA or Amazon and Tesla. You know, we like the IRRs, the cash levels and balance sheets of these companies, but we're now looking for opportunities outside of the Magnificent Seven. You know, small cap, international equities, they have more attractive valuations. And, you know, I'll just end with we're very focused on the concentration and the drivers of return last year, but we can't forget that many of these stocks actually contributed to the market declines that we saw the year before in 2022. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, if you rewind the clock back to 2019 and you look at these stocks and what's driven their returns, it's actually mostly been earnings. But if you look just at last year, it was mostly multiple expansions. But if you look today where the multiples are on the Magnificent Seven, I mean, trading at nearly 60 times earnings versus the market X, those stocks trading at, you know, 18 times. I think your point is a really good one. And we write about it in the piece. You know, we're just looking for opportunities outside of these names. Yes, we own a lot of Microsoft and Alphabet as examples, and they are tied to the powerful growth trends of the cloud and AI, great, great free cash flow margins and growth and solid balance sheets. But, you know, there's a price for anything, even the most high quality assets. And as their prices go higher, valuations go higher, you know, on the margin, we have to start looking elsewhere. Yeah. And I mean, we talk about this a lot. We spend a lot of time focused on looking at investor sentiment and earnings revisions. And we're very mindful that the U.S. sectors that are still seeing positive earnings revisions are going to be in technology, consumer discretionary, and communication services. So in order for us to really see that sustained broadening of market performance, you either need earnings revisions to turn positive for some of those more cyclical value sectors, or we have to see negative earnings revisions from some areas in technology, or I guess, you know, we probably need to see the Fed make their first cut. Yeah. I was just going to add, you know, I sent an article recently by a client who was asking if passive investing was leading to the distortions of the valuations of some of these big cat companies. There's even been some articles suggesting that, you know, passive investing has kind of Marxist leanings. It's anti-capitalist because it, you know, doesn't care about the value that you're paying for a share of a company. I just thought it would be interesting to take a moment to kind of talk about that and note that, yes, the headlines have picked up on the fact that when you look at active mutual funds and ETFs, that 50% of those funds are now passive. And that's an alarming statistic to some, but those funds own less than half of the overall market. You know, Individuals and hedge funds and pensions own stocks directly. So probably only 20% of the S&P 500 shares are owned by passive investors. So it's still the minority. And then if you look at things like trading volumes, those are skewed even more heavily towards active investors and the high volumes of hedge fund firms, the millenniums and citadels or quantitative investors dwarf those of the ETF. So, you know, those are investors that generally care about valuation, at least to some degree. So I don't think I'm ready to say that passive investing is kind of setting the marginal price of all of these stocks, but clearly the flows into passive can lead to some distortions, which hopefully fundamental investors like ourselves can take advantage of. I think it's a really good question. It's really hard to quantify, and I'd agree with your comments. I guess passive inflows 
may partly explain the growth in these names, but I'd also say that a lot of the passive flows are mostly driven by investors that are attracted to the low-cost advantages of those funds and indices. You know, I do think what's happening today and what happened in the late 90s is more than that. I mean, investors love euphoria of potential growth, and they've historically paid for it. You know, if you go back and look at the four companies in the late 90s, Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, and Dell, I mean, they really led the boom. And in parts of 1999 and 2000, that group accounted for more than 50% of the NASDAQ's price movement. So, you know, again, going back to concentration, we've had periods in history where a few stocks have had a tremendous influence on the market. I'd say what's different today about the Magnificent Seven or the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 is, one, balance sheets are strong. They're in a better fundamental position. These companies have a lot more cash and they're ready to deploy that cash. If you look at Microsoft alone, back in 1999, Microsoft had $10 billion in cash. I mean, just by size and scale, today it's more than $140 billion. Second, uh, average operating margins are more than double the S&P 500, 28% versus 13. And then third, I mean, we can't discount the fact that there could be more room for these companies to grow. I think a lot of people don't realize that multiples for these stocks, for many of them, are just back to where we were pre-pandemic. I think, yes, it's hard to keep growing at these rates. It's hard to keep growing at their size. And there are many threats. There's competitive, there's regulatory threats that could ultimately impact this streak of performance. Sid, maybe we can go back to monetary policy. You wrote in the Outlook piece about the long and variable lags. Are those lags longer this cycle? When do these lags actually impact the economy? Or is this cycle different than past hiking cycles? I mean, it really has not felt like a normal business or economic cycle over the past four years. I would very much agree with that. I mean, first of all, the concept of these long and variable lags is just that it takes a while for the Fed's overnight rates to filter through into other costs of capital. And I do think these lags have been longer as consumers and companies both have locked in low rates when they were pegged at near zero and benefited from huge fiscal stimulus. I mean, a couple of starter facts for the conversation. On average, recessions have begun about two years after the first Fed rate hike in a cycle. And 70% of the time, these cycles have caused a recession. And we've talked about that a lot. We're about to hit that two-year mark next month. I would just say there is a huge range around that average. You know, it can be much shorter or much longer. And I think there are reasons to think it will be longer this time. First of all, housing market is basically frozen. Consumers are locked into generally sub four or 5% mortgages. They're making more on their savings account today than they're paying on their mortgages. And when you look at how much of U.S. disposable income is going to pay their overall borrowings, including the mortgage, it's still near 50-year lows at less than 10%. That paints a very healthy picture for consumer balance sheets. And on the corporate side, corporations went out and used low rates to extend the duration of their borrowings, went from five to six years on average to eight to nine years during covid So companies did what our U.S. Treasury really should have done more of, and they locked in low rates for longer. And the last piece is excess savings, which peaked at $3.5 trillion in the U.S. as a result of huge fiscal stimulus, was another big buffer. So consumers have been able to withstand higher credit card costs and clearly higher inflation, in part because of the checks sent by the U.S. government. 
you know, I would say these debt costs are rising and excess savings is running out. And so, you know, we don't know when we'll really start to see that impact. Corporations are slowly refinancing the debt and the average coupon for corporates, which bottomed out at about three and a half percent in 2022 and a staggeringly low one and a half percent in Europe, by the way, it's back up to around four and a quarter percent. So if the market repriced or refinanced every single bond today, corporations would be paying closer to five and a quarter percent. So, you know, interest expense is rising and it's kind of already baked in that it'll continue to rise in 2024, just as companies are refinancing. And likewise for consumers, they're eventually going to have to move homes as they move jobs or start a family and mortgages will be repricing at the prevailing seven to 8% mortgage rates today. That's going to be a drag. And if you look at debt service outside of mortgage payments, so just looking at things like credit cards and auto loans, that level is already at 15-year highs. And the last point is excess savings, that $3.5 trillion has already fallen down to about $500 billion. So, you know, there are signs that these rates are going up, savings is coming down, and it's just a question of how long this will last. So we bring that up just to remind everyone that while the U.S. economy and consumers have held in really well, despite this big rate hiking cycle, you know, some of this is due to the unique dynamics of this cycle. And we may start feeling more of those effects this year. We're starting to see delinquency rates on consumer loans ticking up a bit, reaching 10-year highs, albeit from very low levels. And we really think just in general, humility in predicting the path of the economy, as I mentioned earlier, given the uniqueness of this cycle is warranted here. We saw how wrong economists were last year. So if there's one major difference, I think, between our outlook and many of our peers, it's just the probability of the kind of tail outcomes, both the slowdown and recession scenario and the one where growth stays strong and inflation stays a bit elevated, which is what the CPI print that we just got has people thinking about a little bit more. So right now, the stock market and bond market appear to be in this Goldilocks scenario mode, and we just are a little bit more humble in thinking that those tail outcomes could occur. Maybe back to you, Erica, with the growing stresses on the consumer that I just outlined, how do you see them hanging in there in the U.S. and how much positivity do you think is kind of baked into the earnings outlook for companies today? Yes, it's truly amazing. The consumer has not missed and really has been the foundation of post-pandemic economic growth. So household spending drives roughly two-thirds of U.S. GDP, and four years after COVID, that spending isn't really letting up. So let's rewind a bit, and I know you mentioned a couple of these areas, but pandemic stimulus boosted the personal savings rate to 33% in 2020. And U.S. households have also benefited from the wealth effect from higher investment portfolios and higher property values. So you won't believe the stat, but the national average home price is up more than 45% since the beginning of the pandemic. So today, consumer wallets now have diminishing leftovers from the pandemic cash cushion. New mortgage rates for 30-year loans are around 7%. Rental rates are still increasing. The national average APR on a credit card right now is 25%. But there continues to be these mixed messages. And the hardest part about understanding the consumer today is you know, if you go to the airports, they're packed. There's lots of travel. If you go to hotels, they're busy. Restaurants are also busy. So people are spending on consumables, household products, and experiences. 
but a lot of those discretionary purchases are showing signs of weakness. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York released their most recent survey of consumer expectations, and the percent of responders that expects to be the same or better off financially 12 months from now is actually 76%, which is the highest level that we've seen since September of 2021. You have several banks so far that have reported earnings saying that consumer balance sheets remain healthy, deposit levels are only slightly down. Visa recently came out and said that consumer spending across all the segments from low to higher end spend has remained relatively stable and they're not seeing any behavioral change across those consumer segments. So net net, we do expect consumer spending to soften disposable income growth to slow down, and lower income household balance sheets to experience the greatest negative impact. However, you know, as long as wage growth is at or above inflation, income growth is probably going to continue to support consumer spending. Sid, maybe we can shift a little bit. I think this is one of your favorite topics. You've been talking a while about the shrinking equity risk premium in markets as rates have risen. Are you still projecting long-term return in bonds that's close to the returns from stocks? And not to put you on the spot, but do you think now is a good time to be buying bonds and extending duration? It is one of my favorite topics, Erica. I think the short answer is not much has changed. I mean, I think our long-term estimates of returns for U.S. large-cap stocks are just over 6% right now, and bonds are just a little bit above 5 So that kind of 1% differential does not compare very favorably to the historical 5% return premium that you expect investing in stocks versus bonds. And so, you know, in the last few months, stock valuations went up, yields went down, and the relative value didn't really change that much. So, you know, the premium gets a little bit more attractive for the U.S. market X the Magnificent Seven, or when you look at smaller companies in the U.S. or other markets like Europe and Japan. But in general, I think this still argues in my mind for a slightly more cautious allocation at the moment if we're expecting kind of more bond-like returns from equities. Clearly, in any shorter period of time, you know, a year or even two years, that can look like a poor decision. But in a long-term view, I still think it makes sense to be rebuilding that bond exposure. As for extending duration, you know, I do think it depends a lot on your starting point. But in general, I'd say yes. I have been adding duration with excitement, I'd say, when the 10-year yield was kind of above 4.5%, a little bit less so when it was below 4%. If you're still hiding out in T-bills and cash and you haven't built up your bond portfolios, investors may be about to learn what reinvestment risk is all about. You know, it's great if cash stays above 5% to be in T-bills, but as the market is projecting sometime in 24 or 25, cash could be yielding more like 3 or 4%. And you may wish you'd locked in a 4 or 5% yield for a longer period of time, 5 or 10 years, because you'll be in reinvesting your T-bills at much lower rates. So today, with the U.S. tenure at four and a quarter percent, that's what we would expect to be about a two percent real yield. So subtracting expected inflation from it, that's above the 50 year average and well higher than what you've been getting the last 20 years. So that's kind of a measure of value in the bond markets. And it looks pretty good. Also, with a four and a half or four and a quarter percent yield, you can withstand rates moving a bit higher without losing money on this allocation. And if growth slows or if inflation does continue to come down, rates could move lower and bonds could actually generate much better than the 4 or 5% return. So 
in general, I'd say yes. So I think that risk premium still argues for building back bonds. And as rates are poking a little bit higher recently, it's getting a lot more interesting to be extending duration. Sid, we get a lot of questions about the U.S. fiscal situation, our large deficits and growing debt load. How does this factor into your asset allocation thoughts? We have a really great chart in the Asset Allocation Outlook that shows net interest payments of major countries relative to the income, you know, tax receipts, et cetera, that they take in. The U.S. really stands out on this metric. We're spending 16% of our government revenue on net interest payments a year. That is two times where it was a decade ago, and it's more than two times any other major country, including the U.K., Italy, France, Japan, forget about Germany, you know, I do see our current path right now as unsustainable, particularly if rates stay elevated. And I say that because right now the Treasury is only paying an average 3.2% coupon on its debt. So it hasn't yet refinanced all of its older, lower coupon debt. So that 3.2% is double where it was at the end of 2021. But again, if you kind of had to refinance everything today, the interest expense would be much higher than that. So that percent of government revenue that would be going to net interest payments would increase further. So this leads to a compounding problem unless we have exceptional growth or we implement some form of austerity. So we cut spending or increase taxes or we try to inflate our way out of debt. And you can ask a lot of emerging market countries how well that final choice works out. So, you know, I'm hopeful that AI will enhance growth and productivity and do some of that work. I think we'll talk about that maybe a bit later, but I do think we're going to need some austerity through spending cuts or increased taxes somewhere down the line. And the likely net impact of that is somewhat negative to overall growth. So that potential drag on growth factors, you know, into our long-term return estimates for stocks. So that's one of the reasons why when we look out seven to 10 years, we're projecting, you know, a six to 7% return on stocks. I will say I'm not yet worried about the US dollar's status as a global reserve currency. We do get a lot of questions on that. I think we've seen neutral to positive trends on the US dollar and foreign reserves and things like SWIFT banking transactions, currency transactions the last few years. So there aren't really signs that the dollar dominance is waning. It's still the safest destination. And China certainly hasn't been doing themselves any favors in creating a challenger of late. And we also really haven't seen a big dip in demand for treasuries at recent auctions, despite some very large issuance numbers. So now the big punchline for me on this is I think we have to assume that it will have some drag on growth. And then the real question is how much of that can we offset through things like AI and productivity increases? So your comments are leading me to bring up a topic that I think we're going to be discussing a lot this year, and that's the election. There's a lot of worry about the presidential election in the U.S. and the potential impacts on the markets. How do you think about these risks? It's a big question. I think the first thing I'd say is it's really hard to find any strong relationship between election results and market returns. If you look back at history, we show a chart on this in our outlook. The data suggests election years are slightly better on average for markets, and they've been slightly better when a Republican is elected. But you know, the best outcome actually historically is when the incumbent is reelected, when returns have averaged 14% versus 11.5% for all the election years. And that's not surprising, as typically presidents will be reelected when things are going pretty well economically. But this is a really noisy data set. It's filled with financial crises, inflationary spikes 
we had the pandemic. If you strip out just one year, 2008, which was a real outlier in the financial crisis, the returns are identical for Republicans and Democrats being elected. And the overall return, you know, looks pretty good in an election year. You know, as much as Biden's infrastructure plan or Trump's tax cuts impacted the economy, there are other factors like low rates and the incredible fundamental performance of these big tech companies that are likely even more important. And, you know, a really interesting data piece from our outlook, you know, you might have expected that a sector like energy would have performed better under Trump than Biden, but the exact opposite was true. Energy stocks had 40% annualized returns under Biden, and they lost 5% a year under Trump. That had very little to do with policy and much more to do with the price of oil and the cycle of investment for energy companies. So yes, there are some real policy differences between Trump and Biden from tax policy to regulatory issues, but betting on that now when it's still a coin flip, what might happen in the election, and there are so many other factors that'll contribute to company performance, isn't something I have a great deal of confidence in doing. You know, what our clients often ask us about is how this cycle is going to be different in other important ways. You know, the age of the candidates, the legal troubles of the candidates, there is definitely potential for some unusual outcomes ranging from Biden being replaced on the ticket or Trump's legal problems becoming more of an issue. This could definitely lead to greater uncertainty and volatility in the markets leading up to the election. But the question I'll be asking is if any of those events are going to change my view on an investment in the long term, five years or more. And if the answer is no, I'd likely be using that volatility as an opportunity. Maybe, Eric, I'll kick it back to you. If we get out of the U.S., where we've talked about valuations being a little bit heightened, how are you seeing opportunities to invest in Europe, Japan, uh, emerging markets just outside of the U.S.? It, you know, it's been years of apparent cheapness in those markets, and yet they still haven't outperformed. How are you thinking about international allocations? Maybe to kick off, we've reduced exposure to China and we've been leaning into global equity strategies and developed international we continue to emphasize managers that are focused on valuation opportunities in those regions. So specifically on Europe, there's still economic risks. Our managers are finding opportunities in global companies that are trading at discounts, mostly because of their European domicile. And we talk about that in the outlook. You know, Europe is a little bit of a different composition than the U.S. They tend to have more names in different sectors, such as finance or consumer staples or luxury goods and brands. So there's a nice opportunity to buy global companies outside of the Magnificent Seven and diversify into other industries. And, you know, a lot of these companies are actually currently misunderstood by investors. So an example is the London Stock Exchange Group. They're a leader in financial real-time data. Their data assets are actually increasingly valuable in an AI-centric world. They have a partnership now with Microsoft that continues to develop. And this is a company with potentially low teens free cash flow growth. Another example is Ferguson. This is one of the largest wholesale maintenance and repair distributors for North American plumbing and HVAC markets. It's a really balanced mix of business. So it's new construction, residential, non-residential. And what that does is it provides stability across various economic cycles. This business has been around for decades. And you know, this is an industrial company that was up 55% last year. 
On China, maybe switching gears a little bit, the region has undergone a big transformation over the past two years. The country's economic growth strategy of debt-fueled infrastructure spending seems to have reached a peak, and the region faces challenges from its real estate crisis. So remember, roughly 70% of the nation's wealth is in real estate. Another thing to mention is the significant demographic issues stemming from their one-child policy that was in place from 1979 to 2015, not to mention a host of trade and geopolitical concerns that are ongoing. So on a top-down basis, the economic situation is deteriorating. However, on a bottom-up basis, valuations are attractive, but it may take multiple years to result in sustainable, strong returns. We were more positive on what the China economy could do in late 2022, but our opinion has changed over the past six months. Sid, maybe keeping the focus on Asia, you've done a lot of work in the region, specifically on Japan. The region has now battled a 25-year period of deflation. Today, we're seeing some price growth. Do you think this is an inflection point? And how are you positioned or not positioned in Asia for clients? I tend to believe it is an inflection point. That's a viewpoint that is informed very heavily by some of the internal stock pickers at Brown Advisory, but also some of our external managers that are based in Asia. And, you know, I think what you see in Japan right now is, you know, a really powerful combination of what appear to be cheap valuations, under-earning companies, and the potential for really changing consumer habits and growth patterns because of getting out of this period of deflation. So when you look at a composite of different valuations that we look at, like price to earnings and price to cash flow, and you look at Japan, we see Japan as trading kind of one standard deviation below the historical averages. And compare that to the U.S. large cap stock market trading at one and a half standard deviations above their historical averages. So Japan looks cheap and it looks cheaper than Europe or Asia or US small cap stocks. And then on the under earning point, you know, the return on equity of Japanese companies is 8%. That's been depressed by some pretty poor governance for decades and deflation. Both of those are kind of going from headwinds to tailwinds. You know, China's at 9%, Europe's at 12%, the US is well over 15%. So you could see both earnings and valuations improve, which could lead to outperformance. And really, that's what we saw last year. It's the only major region or country where we saw really strong fundamental earnings growth. And valuations really didn't go up that much. So we're starting to see some of our global and Asia managers increasing exposure there, in some cases at the expense of places like China. And we are definitely you know, looking for interesting ways to add more direct exposure. It's not a big part of the global stock market because of this you know, 20 plus years of underperformance. So it is unlikely to become a huge part of any portfolio, but definitely something we're looking to increase. So maybe trying to stay on a positive note here after our discussion of China. So following up on Japan, maybe you could talk a little bit about how AI and perhaps to a lesser extent GLP-1s could actually impact the global economy. We had a bit of a write-up on that in our outlook. You know, How do you think about it from an asset allocation perspective? How might this impact growth, productivity, company earnings, et cetera? 
Yeah, so we tried something different this year in our market outlook, and we included in the back separate pieces on the consumer, fiscal debt, AI, and GLP-1s. So to start, technology innovation has historically provided a boost to economic productivity. So Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, they've demonstrated that scale and resources matter in AI, and they're pouring a lot of capital, a lot of CapEx into a lot of these infrastructures. And look, there's so many estimates out there on the impact to productivity from AI. McKinsey said that AI could boost more than $4 trillion to the global economy every year. The IMF just came out with a report saying that AI could impact 40% of jobs worldwide. It's also important to note that AI could impact highly skilled workers. And some say that we're on this brink of a technological revolution. But for now, there's a lot of excitement, but there's still less proven outcomes. But it all seems to be moving remarkably fast. I mean, several models are becoming easier to create and scale, but companies really need to be adaptable at this stage. In January alone, if you look at the earnings reports, roughly 40% of companies mentioned AI. So this is across sectors. This isn't just in tech or communication services. And then, you know, the other area that we're seeing now is we're seeing some financial metrics. So Microsoft Azure growth came from demand for AI services and rolling out small language models. AWS is a driver of Amazon's operating income. Taiwan Semiconductor jumped a few weeks ago on demand for high-end chips that are now used in AI applications. And Google Cloud is more than 10% of Alphabet's revenue. So Will AI ultimately lead to an error of margin and productivity gains for a lot of sectors? That remains to be seen. But, you know, there's a lot of attention being given to AI right now, and it's going to take a lot of time for our teams and investors to just get a better sense of that profitability and that scale. Sid, maybe passing back to you, what are your thoughts on AI? Well, we write about it a little bit in the piece, but clearly a big beneficiary are the cloud providers, right? It is very clear that we're going to need more and more servers to be running the AI. And I think a really interesting observation from our analyst who covers Microsoft is that as Microsoft's been kind of reaccelerating growth in their cloud, their margins have actually been increasing. So they're building out more capacity, but still increasing margins as that's happening. And so we're seeing a pretty positive financial impact for especially some of these cloud providers. We're clearly seeing it for NVIDIA, who's selling the chips that are used for AI servers. When I consider the productivity, you know, one interesting way to think about this is, you know, there's four and a half million software engineers in the U.S., and when you look at tools like Microsoft's GitHub Copilot, which helps engineers write software, we're leveraging a huge database of existing code. The estimates are that coders using GitHub Copilot can increase their productivity by 50% plus. And so if you take 3% of the U.S. workforce and make them 50% more efficient using very, very rough math, that is a 1.5% increase in productivity just there on its own. And then the applications that they're writing clearly have the ability to make the users far more efficient in accessing and analyzing data, improving customer outcomes, making drafts of marketing, legal, and other documents. I mean, when I think about how this is going to likely change our business in terms of quickly summarizing legal documents or 
pulling information from the reams and reams of research notes that we've created over the years, or even just more swiftly drafting RFPs, I feel like we're only kind of scratching the surface here for AI's impact on productivity. And so I'm pretty hopeful for what impact it's going to have on the economy. I mean, GLP-1s we also write about. I'm not quite sure yet what the overall uptake is going to be in the population for these drugs, but the potential is huge for improving health and reducing healthcare costs. Just the impact is going to be very different if it's 5% of the population taking these drugs or if it's something more like 20 or 30%. And I kind of also feel like the market was quick to price in big moves for the perceived winners and losers from this development. You know, GLP-1 winners outperformed GLP-1 losers by, you know, 50, 60, 70% last year. And I think there may be opportunities to buy shares in companies that are maybe perceived to be bigger losers than they actually will be. You know, areas like robotic surgery or certain healthcare companies dealing with illnesses that are related to weight or even some of the consumer or food companies expected to lose share if the population changes eating habits. It's just not quite as clear yet what that impact will be. Yeah, it's amazing, Sid, the moves that we saw in some of the companies that could be negatively impacted or threatened, such as, you know, heart surgery or diabetes prevention or even just CPAP for sleep apnea. When, you know, right now, I mean, a lot of GLP-1s are not that accessible to patients from a cost standpoint. Maybe to close out, why don't we talk a little bit about things you've been doing most recently in portfolios, Erica? I'll keep this pretty simple. I mean, staying invested, increasing duration. We're back at target weights on fixed income after being underweight for a while, mostly because of that higher yield carry that we see today. We've been spending a lot more time on areas that could benefit if rates move lower. So some of these are more value and cyclical areas. But, you know, we realize that there's a lot of leverage out there, particularly in U.S. large cap value. And we continue to seek out a more active approach and look for companies that are attractively valued but are also generating cash. You know, another area that, Sid, you and I have gone back and forth, you know, on several of these podcasts, but we are finding opportunities and it sold off a lot last year at one point is U.S. small cap and valuations are attractive versus a lot of metrics on a relative basis versus history. And, you know, that's another index that has become pretty levered and with a lot of lower quality names, but there's still plenty of companies within U.S. small cap that we like that are misunderstood by investors that have recurring revenues and actually have cash flow. Sid, maybe I'll pass it back to you. We've covered a lot today. You know, how does this discussion translate into asset allocation and client portfolio decisions for you? I think a lot of the same things I'm thinking about. So increasing fixed income exposures the last you know year or two and being okay increasing duration. I'm still underweight, say, the bond market, which is six years of duration, but I don't want to be at zero. And using these opportunities when yields are spiking higher to rebuild bonds at the expense of cash and T-bills feels very comfortable to me when rates are at the four and a half percent rate or higher. And, you know, we may be getting a chance at that right now. Another thing I'm thinking a lot about is within credit. You know, I think we're getting the opportunity to get equity-like returns in credit. In recent months, public credit, think high yield and leveraged loans, those yields have come down, the spreads have come down a bit. And 
private credit yields have stayed around the same level. So the spread between what you can get in the private world versus the public world has improved, making, in my mind, private credit more attractive relative to public markets. So I think there's an opportunity for making more of your allocations in the private world and still getting those kind of 11, 12, 13% type returns versus you know, in public high yield markets today, you know, we're looking at more seven to 8%, which again, is still pretty attractive if you're getting what we think are going to be the long-term returns on equities with less risk, but particularly for taxable clients where you're going to be paying a higher tax rate on that income, a little bit less attractive than it was three or four months ago. Agree with your point on small caps. And, you know, I think even within small caps, one of the areas that I am particularly interested in and have allocations to is in the biotech and life sciences space. And I think really interesting developments the last few months have been that, you know, big cap pharma companies, which have hundreds of billions of dollars of cash and buying power, have really ramped up their acquisitions of small cap biotech companies, which still have near record numbers of those companies trading kind of at or below the cash balances on their balance sheet. So innovation, I believe, is on the rise. I think the success rates of trials due to the advancements in technology have been increasing and valuations look cheap and some of the bigger players are really starting to come in and swoop up their next legs of growth. Well, thank you, Erica. It was great to catch up with you and only you today and bring attention to our outlook. Please do check out the links to the piece in our show notes, and you can also find it on the Brown Advisory website and let us know what you think. Thanks for tuning in. Great conversation. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed.